Well, please take your Bible with me and turn to the book of Philippians, where we've been uh, parked most of the year here. Philippians chapter 2 is where we find ourselves this morning, and we're in a section of Scripture which addresses the doctrine of sanctification. Uh, Sanctification, as it's usually talked about in Scripture, is a progressive work in the life of a Christian where that Christian grows daily to be more like Christ. And, and usually the way we talk about that is there is a, uh, a putting off, a repenting of, a lessening of sin in that believer's life, and then there is a progressive growth and change in godliness and holiness and Christ-likeness. And uh, just to remind you of where we've been as uh, we've gone through chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, Verses 12 and 13 talk about the two most important aspects of the uh, process of sanctification. And as I've said to you a number of times over the last couple of weeks, I find my experience is that many Christians are very confused about how we grow and how we change. And uh, even what Terry has been talking about in 1 John corresponds with this, that a believer struggling with sin is not an indication that he's not a believer. Right? That, that's a, a struggle with sin is normal in the life of a believer. On the other hand, there should be a lessening of sin and a growth in godliness. And in fact, it doesn't matter what anybody says they believe. What John says, in terms of what Terry's been talking about, is that if there's no fruit, no evidence, no growth, no progress, then that person is probably not a Christian because the Holy Spirit inevitably, inevitably produces fruit and change in the life of a believer. What Paul is addressing in Philippians and in our time in in class here is how that process happens. So let's just remind ourselves of the two dynamics that we've talked about over the last two weeks, the two dynamics of sanctification. Look back at verse 12 in chapter 2. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I put this up here because some of you may have not been here um, in the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, The Bible talks about salvation in terms of three aspects. There's a past aspect for the believer. That's called justification, where he first trusts in Christ. There's a present reality of salvation. That's the doctrine of sanctification, how we grow to be more like Jesus every day. And then there's a future hope of salvation. That's when uh, we either die someday or Jesus comes back and we go to be with him. And at that point, all sin is removed and we are made to perfectly reflect the image of Christ in all things. So those three aspects. Well, we're talking about the second aspect or sanctification, growth in Christ's likeness. And and here's kind of how it works, okay? Let's say right there, that little arrow right there, right there is when you became a Christian, you first trusted in Christ, right there, okay? And what that, we call that conversion. There's lots of names for it, but I'm just going to call it conversion. When we are converted to Christ, when we trust Jesus for the first time and are regenerated. Now, at that point in time, in terms of our position now, I'll show this here. You see the, uh, the bl- uh, blue arrow is going to represent the believer's position before God. And, and when I say position, what I, think, think with uh, me on this. Position is how God views you. Okay? Does that help? Position, the believer's position, is how God views you. 
what he thinks about you. Okay. So at conversion, what happens? Position is perfect Christ-likeness. We're, we're all the way up on the top of the righteousness axis here. So when, a, when, a, when God looks down on a person who has trusted in Christ, guess what he sees? He sees perfect righteousness. He sees perfect Christ-likeness, perfect holiness. We say, well, how does he see that? Because I'm not in my daily activity. I'm not perfectly like Jesus yet. Because he's not looking at your practice. He's looking at your position. He's looking at who you are in Christ. That when you were converted and you turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, you recognized your sinfulness, you, you realized that you didn't meet up to, with God's standard, that you couldn't be good enough to, to do what God told you to do. And you realized that for the first time. And you realized that you needed some assistance, that, that someone would have to help you and rescue you if that were to ever change. And at that point, when you realize Jesus came, died on the cross to pay for your sins and to give you his perfect gift of righteousness as a gift. Because Jesus was perfect, wasn't he? He was perfectly holy. He, he did all the commands of God. He obeyed perfectly, just like you and I were supposed to do, but we didn't. When that person trusts in Christ, not only are their sins forgiven, but Jesus takes that perfect righteousness and he gives it to the believer as a gift. And uh, the reformers, especially Martin Luther, like to talk about this like a coat. As if Jesus were to hand him a coat of righteousness and the sinner were to put it on. And so that with the, with the coat around him of perfect righteousness, his sin would be hidden now. And as God the Father would look down, he would see not the sinfulness of the person, but the perfect righteousness of his son. You see that? So at our conversion, when a person first trusts in Christ, that's what happens. He's clothed in the righteousness of Christ, if we can call it that. And so his position is perfect Christ-likeness. But as you and I both know, that doesn't mean we're perfect in our practice, and our activities every day, is it? No. In fact, we struggle with a lot of the same things, don't we? But what we do see, or I should say what we should see for real Christians, is this black line here of progressive growth and righteousness. You say, well, Keith, some of those days uh, it doesn't look like we're making a whole lot of progress. looks like we might be going backward. Well, you know what? That's reality. Isn't that true? There are some days in the Christian life you feel like you're going backwards, not forwards. That's normal Christianity. What's important, if I can just continue on my little uh, PowerPoint here, Someone told me there was a way to connect all those. So I'll figure that out. What's important is the slope. What's important is the pattern and the progress. That's what's important. And that's what First John, uh, what Terry's been teaching us from First John. It's not perfect righteousness. No, no, no. We don't, we don't recognize a perfect life in, in, in this side of heaven. But what we do see is growth and change over time. And, and just, just a, maybe a reminder, a little litmus test. If, if you are where you need to be in your Christian life, you should look back over the last year and say, you know what, by God's grace, there's some change. Praise God for that change. I got more to do. Yeah, well, there's always more to do, right? But by God's grace, I see change. The problem is we live in a culture where everybody's a Christian. Everybody's a Christian. You go to Walmart, are you Oh, of course I'm a Christian. Yeah, yeah, right. But, but if you were to ask Anybody that professes to be a Christian, well, how has God grown and changed you in the last year? Uh, 
Uh, right? And they look at you like, change, growth? I, I just, I know Jesus, right? I just know Jesus. I've always gone to church. I've always... And that's the problem. Is that we have a whole culture of people that think they're Christians, but there's no growth and change. There's no evidence. There's no fruit. And what John says, in terms of what Terry's been talking about, is even though those people think they're Christians, they're not. Because there has to be some growth and change. That growth and change is evidence of the Holy Spirit really residing in the life of the believer. You say, well, where does that end? Well, at some point, guess what? We die. I got news for you. At some point, that happens. Or, or maybe, Jesus comes back. That'd be cool, too. But at some point, death or Jesus returns. And at that point, what happens? Yeah, the flat line. Well, yeah, yeah. The um, the EKG will be flat, but the salvation will be vertical. See, that's all right. Now, um, yeah, what happens at death, or what the Bible, uh, what theologians describe as glorification, now is our position is brought in line with our practice, so that now in our position and our practice. There is perfect righteousness. In fact, you can think of sanctification, growth in Christ. You can think of it as a convergence of our position, or actually position straight, uh, of our practice with our position. Okay, that's sanctification. That's growth. And uh, conversion, this first phase of salvation, we call that justification. The growth in Christ, we call that sanctification. And the death that brings about perfect righteousness in our practice is called glorification. The three aspects. Of salvation. Okay? Um, teach that to somebody that doesn't know that this week. Teach that to your kids. Teach that to your grandkids. When you're meeting with your lady friends, when you're meeting with your guy friends, when you're on the golf course, teeing it up. Okay? A lot of people don't understand the three aspects of salvation, and guess what? It shows up in a struggle in how they live. They don't know how to grow. They don't know how to change. Okay? So there you go. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to teach that to somebody this week. Now, so let's go back to our text. Philippians chapter 2, uh, Paul has talked about work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I don't know about you, but um, when I was in school, one of my favorite classes were, were not the classes where someone would get up and they'd start some math problem that would start on the front board, and by the time they were done, it was down the side on the back board. I mean, th- those are okay. I mean, you know, you have to tolerate math and stuff like that. But my favorite classes, high school, college, were what we called labs. How many of you guys like labs? I saw the high school, yeah, the college high school students. You like labs? Yeah, those are good? Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Because C- I found... I'll sell you on this by the time I'm done. Um, I found that labs are one of the best ways to learn. You, you can you can put it in your head. You can write the right answers down on a test. But when you get in the lab and you get your hands dirty and you can blow stuff up and build stuff and tear stuff down and dissect I, I won't get too graphic. Dissect stuff and then that's a really good way to learn, isn't it? So the last thing we want to do when we study the Bible is walk away saying, wow, I got some new facts, but never let it filter down into actually how we live, what we do, and how we, how we go about things. So we're going to do a lab today. Now, now, let me put you at ease. There's no frogs. I don't have any fetal pigs up here that I'm hiding. Just, just, we're going to apply what we've learned the last couple of weeks, the doctrine of sanctification, we're going to apply that with an area that I know none of you struggle with. 
Okay, I picked something that was rare so you wouldn't be too convicted that the Holy Spirit wouldn't have a whole lot to do on any of you this morning. Um, oh, this is review. Okay, let's just blow through this here. All right. Okay, work out your salvation, a real-world example. Read, this is the lab. Okay, so I picked an area. Again, I didn't want, I didn't want to make anybody feel bad, so we're going to talk this morning about sinful anger. Okay? <laughs> I know only a few of you struggle with sinful anger. And I've, saw, I've seen a couple of you even this morning. It was really kind of funny. It's just how God set that up. But anyway, how do I grow? <laughs> my, our, our, college, our college pastor used to say, does Satan drive in the car with you on the way to church also? You know, okay. Um, how do I grow and change in regard to my sinful anger? How can we apply what we learned in Philippians 2, 12 and 13 to what I'm going to call a basically universal struggle for all of us, okay? You might be a volcano, you get angry, you blow up, you, you throw things, you break things. You might be uh, a crock pot, which means when you get angry, you get very quiet. And there is an atmosphere in the room you're in that is thick enough to be cut with a knife. You withdraw, you have looks. Anyway. So it doesn't matter if you're a volcano or a crockpot. Um, we're going to talk about sinful anger today. How do we apply that? Well, look at verse 2, chapter 2, verse 12. And let's talk, first of all, if, if I'm dealing with sinful anger in my life, and maybe just as we introduce this, you can be thinking about what are the areas that I tend to get angry? Um, and let me help you with that. It may be with particular people. It may be in particular situations. It may be at particular times of day. But I bet if, if you're kind of being honest with yourself and, and letting God examine your heart right now, you can say, you know what? And I could do it too. I could. Um, there, there are a couple of areas, maybe more than a couple of areas, where traffic, um, driving, working with family, Boss, coworkers, teachers, parents, small children, grown children, okay? Anything, everything in between. So just kind of be thinking, what are those areas? Um, and if you said this morning, you know what, Keith? I, I know that God would want me to work on that because as James chapter 1, uh, verses 19 and 20 says, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Okay? The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So sinful, sinful anger is not a good thing. And uh, we could, we, if we did a whole study on anger, we could see that it's destructive, it it's, leads to other problems, so I, I'm pretty sure I don't have to convince you about all that. Okay, so sinful anger, if you wanted to work on that, if you said, you know what, I really want to grow, this year I really want to grow in my sinful anger. I want to be a less angry person to be more righteous, more kind, more gracious, more patient. How would I do that? Well, you've got to start off with the right motivation. So let, let's ask a question here, okay? What sh- why should I want to change? Why should I want to change? I mean, th- there, are, there are horizontal reasons. You know, when I do that, people don't respect me. When I do that, it destroys relationships. When I do that, uh, it's bad for my blood pressure. Or, you know, there's lots of reasons for do that. But look at chapter 2. 
And remember where we were. This is the kenosis passage, right? God becomes a man. The Son of God uh, comes down from heaven, leaves that position of the right hand of God, takes on humanity, and he comes down to live in our place, right? And at the end of all that, what does God do? As the work of redemption is accomplished, verse 9, Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now watch this. So then, my beloved brethren, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation, here it is, with fear and trembling. Why should you be committed to working on the sinful anger in your life? Because Jesus has been highly exalted because God has brought him back to that position at his right hand and has declared him to be king of kings and lord of lords. He is the master of the universe. He is the lord of creation. And he says, you need to work on your anger. There's lots of motivations to work on things in your life, but what Paul is focusing on here is very simple. Jesus is our Lord, Jesus is our boss, Jesus is our master, and he says, you need to work on that. Do you want to tell him no? <laughs> Are you crazy? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one and I don't know if you, you picture the, the one to whom everybody in creation will bow their knees to one day. The one about whom every tongue confesses is Lord and Master one day. See, see we, don't, we don't have any sense of Christ's power, of his position, of how you don't mess with Jesus. We don't see that now because God is letting things play out, isn't he? There are people that live like Jesus doesn't exist. There are people that live like they, they can be their own bosses, and they get away with it. Sure. But one day they will bow. One day they will confess. Now, as Christians, we are followers of Christ, right? Uh, what does uh, Romans 10, uh, verses 9 and 10 say? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as, what's the next word? So if you're a Christian, you've declared him to be Lord of your life. You've declared him to be the master. And the fear and trembling part of sanctification is saying, if the Lord of the universe tells us to do something, we better do it. Because that's who he is. Now, again, there are lots of other motivations. We should do it out of our love for God. We should do it out of our desire to be like Him. We should do it because we don't want to dishonor Him. We want to please God. We want to be good examples. Those are all great motivations, okay? And those are good. But what Paul focuses on here, and what I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to embrace today, is that we should work on areas of our life that need to change because Jesus is our Lord, and He says we need to do it. Okay? That's the motivation. Number two. What about ability? Is it possible to change? Because I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Keith, if I'm, if I'm being honest with you, I've been angry a long time. In fact, I kind of have a reputation. Yeah, out on that golf course. 
when I'm coaching guys, uh, gals, I kind of have that reputation, right? You know, when all my girlfriends know when I get crossways with somebody, look out, right? I got that reputation. How am I going to change? Is it even possible to change? Well, look back at chapter 2, verse 13. Is it possible to change? The answer is a resounding yes, because this is true. Look at verse 13. Because it's God who is at work in you. Stop right there. Look up. If you're a Christian, God is in you. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, which means you have all the divine resources you need to change. God, as as the master of the universe says, you need to change. And in the same breath, he says, and I've given you everything you need to change. Okay? So your ability to change and my ability to change is not dependent ultimately on, I got the right formula, right? I got the right principles, It's dependent ultimately on the fact that the living, breathing God of the universe is alive in you through the person of the Holy Spirit. And look at what he does. It's God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does that mean? He produces a will, a desire to change. Because, okay, do a test here, okay? If sinful anger is an issue in your life and you just heard what God said, all of you should be wanting to change. And if there are some of you here that are saying, well, I'm not really convinced of that. I'm really not sure. sure." That's not good. There's no such thing as a believer that does not want to change. Now, we may fight against that, but we ultimately give in. There may be days when we struggle, but we ultimately submit. There may be days when we see a regression rather than progress, but at the end of it, it's like, no, I want to change. Why? Why is that true? Because God has put the desire in you to change. He's put the desire in you to be like him. And just a footnote, if you don't have that desire, if you don't want to change, if you think Christianity is just going through a couple of hoops and doing this, but but those things in your heart that you know do not honor God, you have no desire to change, I would challenge you about your spiritual condition. Because what this text says is if God is in you, there is a wanting, there is a desire to change. Do you agree with me on that? Okay. So sometimes it's just a glimmer, but it's there. But not only is there a wanting, look at the next word, and to work for his good pleasure. The Holy Spirit's working inside you through your efforts. The Holy Spirit is, is energizing your efforts. The, the way, um, I remember years ago when Alan was first learning how to play golf, and I don't know how to play golf, um, but I, I knew it better than he did, that the, right? You know, no, you turn the club around, son, that's the part you hang on to, you know, stuff like that. And, and what, what do we do with our kids? They're learning something, you tee it up, and he, he takes his little club that's about that long. And what do you do? You come around behind him. You show him how to put his hands. You put your hands around his hands. You bring it back and you hit it, right? That's what God is doing. You know, he may say, look, daddy, I hit the ball. And I smile. Good job, son. Was that 90% me? 90% dad? 98% dad? You know, right? 
That's true. But that, that's the God works through our efforts. The Holy Spirit works through our efforts. Like a father helps a little guy to do something, and then he thinks, oh, yeah, I did it. It was dad working through and on him to do that. And that's what this text is saying. God works through our efforts. Okay. Now let's talk about the first dynamic. The first dynamic is the believer obeys, right? We take steps of obedience. Uh, verse 12 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So how we're going to play that out in our lab here is I need to take specific strategic steps of obedience regarding my sinful anger. Now, b- because we don't change in fuzzy land, I want to ask for a brave person here. Um, let's, let's work on a real scenario. Can we do that? Would one of you like to share a real-world scenario of anger? Maybe for you, maybe you're just making it up, but uh, let, let's get a real example on the table here so we can we can really do a good lab, okay? Would someone like to share? i got lots of examples, but you've heard them all. <laughs> Anybody have an example? What's that? Thank you for being honest, Mac. We all have lists. Yeah. Sherry and I both, um, we concerned about our country and we're concerned about the direction our leaders are taking and who our leaders are and, and, and that those leaders have been chosen by those amongst us to represent us and sure. to represent our, hopefully, our, our uh, morals and so forth and to want the same things we want and we don't. Okay. Only every day. <laughs> okay. How many how many of you are concerned about the moral decline of our country? Put your hands down. How many of you get angry sometimes at decisions that are made politically, morally, culturally? Guys okay, okay. All right. So you picked a good one. So let's talk about that. Um Dynamic one is take specific strategic steps of obedience regarding my sinful anger. Um, The first way I'm going to do that is I'm going to identify ruling desires in my heart that lead me to sinful anger. Turn in your Bible to James chapter 4, because James is going to help us to understand why we get angry. And then we'll use the example that Matt gave that we can all relate to uh, as a a means of applying that. Okay, James chapter 4. I love when the Bible is this practical, when, it, when it's this uh, down in the trenches, uh, when it feels like God was writing it for my family in my living room kind of thing, you know what I mean? Listen to James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? <laughs> Pretty good, huh? What is the source of quarrels? Why do you get angry? Why do you fight? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war on your members? That word pleasure means the feeling I get when I get my way. We love to get our way. 
we have advanced degrees in wanting to get our way, right? And James says, you know what? That's part of the problem. We love to get our way too much. Um, If you want it quick, it's the feeling I get when I get what I want. That's what the word pleasures mean. And and James says here, they wage war in your members. So watch how this works. Verse 2, you lust. Now, that that little word lust is not not sexual desire. Lust just means a ruling desire. It means you want something so bad, it steers your life. Okay? So... In our example that Matt gave that we can all relate to, when we see the moral decline of our country, we see political leaders, cultural leaders, uh, bills being passed, laws being written, laws being shown to be unconstitutional. Sometimes we want something too much. Now, what is it that we're wanting in that moment that leads us to get angry at a political leader, at a decision that's made in our government, um, something that happens. Cold. What, what, are, what are we wanting that we're not getting? We want people to be moral, right? Now, is that a bad thing? No, that's a good thing. That's good. See, that's the first thing. You have to, first thing you have to do with anger is say, is what I'm wanting a good thing or a bad thing? And oftentimes, what I'm wanting that I'm not getting is a good thing. Because see, uh, anger. You've heard me say this before. Anger is a warning system that you want something too much. Right? And that's what he says here. Uh, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. What, what does he mean? I want something and I want something so bad that when I don't get it, I go kill somebody. Or the lesser form of murder still makes you guilty, but the lesser form, according to Jesus in Matthew 5, is we get angry with our brother. So murder is is the final conclusion, the final end of anger, Um, most of the time that doesn't happen. That's good. But the seed of murder is anger. And anger happens when we want something too much and we don't get it. So in our example, I have to identify ruling desires in my heart that lead me to get angry. I want to have a moral country. Now, is that a bad thing? No, it's a good thing. Should we do godly things to bring that about? Yes! But the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So I identify that that ruling desire. What's that ruling desire? I want a moral country too much. You say, is it possible to want something good too much? Yes. Because there's only one thing we should want that much, and that's to honor and please God. There's only one person, there's only one issue that deserves our ultimate allegiance. And as good as a moral country is, that's not it. It's to honor and please God. And God says, yes, a moral country is good, but there are ways that honor God to bring that about. And there are ways that don't honor God that we try to bring that about. David. Back when uh, you you and Terry talked about that uh, certain legislative presidential were appointed by God 
And I appreciate you saying that because because I, that, I think we all can relate to that. We all feel like that. And um, you know, one of the things that we're going to see, whether it's anger or any other sin, is that usually most of our struggles come down to wanting to have God's position in some way. Most sins, if you reduce them down, have at a foundational level, I'm wanting to be God in some way. Because if I was God, I would take my theological magic wand and I'd say, boop, America's a moral country. Isn't that what you would do? It's what I would do. But God, who is infinitely wise and infinitely knowing and his ways are perfect and his plans are just, all throughout history allows wickedness and corruption in government to occur. You say, well, why is that? Well, actually, he tells us a few places in the Bible why he does that. You remember, oh, I don't know, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, all the other ites. Remember that? Remember them? Um, And there are times in the Bible where God says very directly, now, Israelites, let me tell you why I'm doing this. So God does pull the curtain back and let us see some of his reasoning sometimes. But at its core, usually my frustration, my anger, is because I would do something different than what God is doing. And I ultimately don't like how God is running his universe. Now, you you can push back on this if you want. I've not developed this good enough in the text for you to agree with me. But just think about this. One of the reasons that anger is so bad is because at its core, we're usually saying when we're angry, we're not happy with what God is doing in our life right now. We're not happy with his plan. We're not, we're not in agreement with what he's allowing to happen. And anger, we don't, sometimes we're angry directly at God, but if you think about it, all anger ultimately terminates on God because who runs the universe? And at the end of the day, when I'm angry, I'm saying to God, I don't like what you're doing. So we have to identify, what are those ruling desires? I want a moral country too much. The second thing I need to do is replace those ruling desires with a desire to honor and please God. I have to say, wanting a moral country is good, but pleasing God is better. And as I want a moral country, that's good, I have to, I have to land at, but what I want even more than a moral country is to honor and please God. And the way that we're going to bring about morality in our country in terms of what, what God has asked us to do, the way we're going to do that is not by getting angry, not by breaking things, not by having hissy fits, not, not by going on rages, but by being salt and light. So see, I have to want that more than I want the moral country. Because if I flip those things around, I get angry when I don't get it. The third thing I need to do is replace sinful words and actions with godly words and actions. Now, aren't you thankful that you don't have a recorder going in your car when you're listening to talk radio? Right? We don't change when we just try to stop doing the wrong thing. We change when we replace the wrong thing with the right thing. You will never change if you just try to stop doing the wrong thing. I'm not going to get ang- I'm not going to talk to the radio like they can hear me anyway, right? You change when you replace the wrong thing with the right thing. 
That's, uh, and again, we're running out of time here, but Ephesians 2, 22 and 24, you have to put off the old man, put off the old way, and replace it with the new way, with the right way. And if you don't do that replacement thing, you don't change. So replacement. So, so what should I do instead of yelling at the radio, yelling at uh, a legislator? You know, let's use a real-world example. You know, the, the Supreme Court says, yeah, we're not sure that this thing called marriage is really, we, we can't really rule on that. It's unconstitutional to say it's between a man and a woman. <laughs> right? Right? And we think... Those sorry Supreme Court leg- uh, uh, um, judges. They just don't have a clue. And da 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 Well, what we should do is pull our car over and pray. Right? We need to get our hearts right first. We need to put off the sin in our hearts and say, No, Lord, I want to honor and please you. And if I'm going to bring about any change in our culture, it's going to happen... By me being salt and light, not by me being angry. So how can I be salt and light? Right? That may, that may mean you vote. Praise God that we have an opportunity to vote, right? Some countries don't have that. We can write to our legislators. We, we can do godly things. We can be an example. We, we can have marriages that honor and please God. We can have marriages that are attractive. That's a way to be salt and light. Those are all ways that we can honor and please God in dealing with this. But yelling at your radio doesn't honor God and doesn't change anything, right? So there has to be a replacement. Or, you know, maybe, maybe this anger thing is between you and your spouse. It's not enough to just you know, every time I open my mouth, the guy says, I just I, I say bad things to my wife, so I'm just not going to talk to her. <laughs> Don't try that, please. Um, <laughs> you have to learn to speak kindly to her. You have to learn to speak gracious to her. You can't talk like you talk to your guys on the basketball court. You can't talk to her like that. Because she's a precious vessel, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. So you've got to replace sinful words and actions with godly words and actions. Replacement is how you grow and change. Fourthly, you want to implement a daily routine to review and apply these truths. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You're not going to change without a plan, without a routine, without a strategic way that you're going about this. Hoping that you're not as, as, as sinful in your anger as you were the day before, hoping will not change you. You gotta put a plan in place. It'd be great to put a little card on your dashboard right next to the radio that says, Matthew chapter 5, I'm supposed to be salt and light. I need to put up, you do stuff. You get up in the morning when you read your Bible and you pray and you've got in your prayer journal, I'm probably gonna be tempted to be angry today because of something that goes on in the culture and here's what I'm gonna do about it when that happens. And you go into your day strategically prepared to respond in a godly way instead of an ungodly way. You discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And that would be good if it's cultural things. Write some things down. What what could you actually do? We talked about praying for the legislature. Um, Do you know how you ultimately win a culture in in terms of morality? evangelism you don't moralize the unconverted we're trying to convert the immoral right 
That's how we do it. So, so how's your evangelism? One of the things that's very convicting when I'm all wrapped around the axle at something that happens politically is to just ask myself, so what have I done this week to be a testimony for the gospel amongst the unbelievers that I know? Am I doing my part? And maybe we need to replace yelling at the radio with talking to our neighbor about Jesus. But writing things down. I'm going to talk to this person and this person and this person about Christ. I'm going to write to my senator about this. Uh, I'm going to get involved in this Christian group that's designed to... um, uh, you know, address this particular moral issue, whether it's abortion or marriage or, okay, those are all good things we can do that are honoring to God instead of sinful. Do you see the difference? We've got to replace them. Implement a daily repentance. And then what about this? Solicit input from an accountability to mature discipler. Titus 2 says older men should be training younger men, older women, younger women. So, so here's how this works. You call, if you're a guy, your accountability partner, your discipler. Oh, you don't have one? How about you get one this week, okay? How about, that's a good idea. Uh, if you're a, a lady, you call your discipler, uh, an older, godly woman in the faith that you respect, look up to. And you say, I've got this problem. I get really angry when I read my newspaper, when I watch the news at night, when I listen to talk radio um, about the political situation. Will you call me every Friday and ask me how I'm doing? And I'm giving you permission, Mr. and Mrs. Discipler, to get in my kitchen about it, to get personal, to call me on the carpet, to call me to repentance, to tell me what I need to hear. I'm giving you permission to do that in my life. I need that in my life, to do that. So accountability, discipleship, it's that that we need to be working together on this kind of thing. Okay? So how do I grow and change and guard my sin? I have to be doing, working out my salvation. Did you hear all the working out of the salvation? Okay. Did you work up a sweat just thinking about all that work that we need to do? You you should have. Because you don't change sitting around thinking, well, I hope I'm not as angry today when I flip on the radio. Maybe we need to turn the radio off. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And it could be that part of what's feeding our anger is we're listening to things that provoke us to anger on the radio. I don't get too personal here, but we need to take Jesus at his word in Matthew chapter 5 and say, you know what, Maybe, maybe I'm not helping myself by what I'm listening to or reading in regard to having a godly perspective about the morality, culture, and political situation. But look at dynamic two. I don't just do, 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 try, 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 work, work, work. No, no, no. What's the second dynamic? It's in verse 13. If you want to go back to Philippians chapter 2 now, if you're still in James, what's that second dynamic? For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I need to, at the same time that I'm working out my salvation, I'm working on my sinful anger, I need to trust in God's empowering presence in order to change. Which means, when I open my Bible in the morning and I'm going through my plan, and i got my card on my dashboard, and I've got my accountability partner, I've got all this going on, 
I'm also reminding myself that I can't make a bit of progress unless God works in me this week. And my dependence on Him is a key to growth. So dynamic two, I'm going to trust in God's empowering presence in order to change. What does that look like very practically? Just some notes here. Spend regular time with God praying about this problem and asking for God to work through my efforts. It is rare that I come across anybody struggling with a significant sin that has a flourishing prayer life. You think there's a connection? (laughs) As David Gibson says, we don't have to be rocket surgeons to understand that, right? Spend regular time with God praying about this problem and asking for God to work through my efforts. How long is the page in your prayer journal for our leaders, for our culture, for the morality of our country, for our legislators, for our president, for our judges, for our local leaders, for our state leaders? Do you even know who those people are? I mean, the the basic way to do this, you write, I'm going to pray for Rick Perry because he's our governor. Right? I'm going to pray for our state senators. I'm going to pray for our local representatives. I'm going to pray for our congressional leaders. I'm going to pray for our president. I'm going to pray. Uh, do you have the Supreme Court justices written down? There are nine of them. Right? Do you have those written down? How's your prayer life? Number two, memorize strategic passes, passages that remind me of the resources and power I have in Christ. <laughs> I tell the story on Eric because he's young enough. Um, another year I'll have to ask his permission before I do stuff like this. But um, the fir- is it, was it the first verse he memorized, James 1, 19 and 20? Or is it just his favorite? Yeah. It, it, Eric is funny because we're working on memorization at night, and his default, if he's not sure, is to tell you James 1, 19 and 20. Okay? If you find him today and you say, Eric, what's James 1, 19 and 20? Assuming he'll talk to you. We're working on that. Um, you know, um, he'll say, be, you know, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And he says it, boom, like that, right? Um, that's a great verse to put on the dashboard of your car next to your radio. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. That's a great verse to put on your bathroom mirror when you're getting ready in the morning. It's a great verse to put in your Bible when you open it up each day and you say, you know what, as much as I'm going to justify my anger today, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So even if I'm right... Even if what I'm looking at in the culture is wrong, and I have biblical proof that that moral issue is wrong, 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 I can prove that my anger is not righteous. Just because of the issue. Just because I'm right on the issue. So memorize strategic passages that remind me of the resources and power I have in Christ. Number three, regularly remind myself throughout the day of my need to depend on Christ. Develop a God consciousness. The way Psalm 16 says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Uh, Proverbs 3, 6 says, um, in all your ways acknowledge him. You say, what what is that talking about? It's that we have to have a consciousness throughout the day of our dependence on Jesus that we're relying on him, counting on him, we're talking to him, we're turning to him. In fact, that's the next one. We want to develop a habit of turning to God. As soon as, uh, as Richard Baxter called anger, the rising up in the heart of passionate displacency. That's a great Puritan way of putting it. The rising up in the heart in passionate displacency. That volcano starts to erupt in your heart when you're starting to get angry. You know what I'm talking about? And at that moment, what we need to do is stop and turn to Jesus. 
Stop and turn to God. We develop the habit of turning to God in our temptation. It's the knee-jerk habit that we turn to God. We say, God, I'm being tempted. I need you to help me. I need you to help me to stop and think about what I'm doing. Help me to respond the right way and repent if I've already given over to anger in some way. Here's another way I can trust in God's empowering presence. I can thank God for any change I see, right? Because it's his work. So if I change and I grow, who should get the credit for that? You know, when when Alan was learning how to golf, and he said, <laughs> I hit the ball, you know? I mean, and we say, yeah, you hit the ball. Good job, son, you know? But as he gets older, you know what he recognizes? It was dad, right? And as as we sort of get older in the faith, what do we do? When we're new Christians, yeah, man, I'm not struggling with that, you know? As we get older, we're like, you know what? It's because we have a good God. We have a God who is at work in us. And then finally, just remember two things. That God's power is stronger than sin. What does Philippians 2.13 say? God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's power is stronger than sin. And we need to especially remember that when we're being tempted. God's power is stronger than how your temptation feels because temptation always feels stronger than God. Isn't that true? Temptation always feels stronger than God, but God's power is stronger than sin. Don't trust your feelings on that. And number two, that God will complete the work he started, especially when I fail. We've got to go back to Philippians 1.6 and remember that on the days that I give in to anger and I turn back to God and I repent and I'm feeling terrible about what I did, we need to remember this, that God will complete the work that he started. That's a good thing to remember on the days that we fail. Okay? We're way out of time, so we need to pray. But um, let's, let's work out our salvation with fear and trembling in practical ways this week, okay? What do you need to work on this week? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way that your word um, gets very, very specific. It gets very personal with us. And we're grateful that it does because that's where we change. Father, thank you that we have a Savior who died for us that's calling us to follow him, to change and grow because he is our Lord and Master. And thank you that we have a Holy Spirit inside of us who empowers that change and allows that change to bring about. And thank you that we have a wise and heavenly Father who orchestrates every event of our life so that we will grow to be more like Jesus through each of them. Lord, thank you for your grace and kindness, your love for us, that you would care about our daily life. Uh, Would you give us wisdom and resolve and give us success this week as we work out our salvation in ways that you've convicted convicted us about today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.